Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. I was going through some boxes upstairs at my house, and I found something my parents had emailed me. I, it's uh, It says, AP U.S. History Honors 11 Essay Cover Sheet. So apparently I wrote an essay February 5th, 2004. My English teacher was Miss Cars, who I loved, and I would love to reconnect with if anyone happens to know Miss Jessalyn Cars from Granite Bay, California. Anyways, I wrote this essay, and not only did I find the essay, but I found this sheet, and I remembered it as soon as I saw it. We'd been asked to write an essay. The prompt was, analyze how and why The Great Gatsby is an exploration of the American dream as it exists in a corrupt period. And uh, I love The Great Gatsby. I'm looking at my copy right here. And uh, anyways, I, I wrote the essay, and... I'll read you the intro. She she typed up my essay and she taught it to the class, which was, I think, my first, like, little, I wouldn't say success is right, but the first time anyone was like, hey, you might be good at this. Um, I said, the 1920s open display of illegal activity and acceptance of sin is the epitome of corruption. It is in this atmosphere, as portrayed in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, that eventually became incompatible with the American dream. The loss of morality signaled the death of hope and idealism in the heart of man. No longer did the public search for satisfaction. Instead, they embraced the immediate gratification of alcohol and sex. Everyone, that is, except for Jay Gatsby, a disillusioned man still clinging to his past. The novel makes it clear that not only had the American dream changed in the past few hundred years, but that it had all but died. Anyways... Uh, she says, the writer has established a confident voice and demonstrates, at least in the introduction, a command of language and critical thinking. She says, what does the writer of our model do? First, I am very aware of his helpful transitions. They neither insult or confuse. Anyways, I don't want to read you this whole thing. It's starting to sound ridiculous. Like, uh, look at the spiral that I threw in, uh, the, the big game or something, but it was, um, I don't know. This is the first time that I that I'd ever been recognized for basically anything uh, as a as a thinker or a writer, and uh, it inspired my. I'd always loved books, and then I think there was some part that I took from this, and then later a recommendation that Miss Cars wrote for me that that made me think maybe I could do this. Maybe there's something here. Maybe I don't have to be a regular person with a nine to five job, and. Um, it's funny, I found another essay in that same pile uh, that I wrote about Gandhi. And as it happened, at that very moment, I was writing about Gandhi for the new book. So anyways, a weird full circle moment that ties into today's guest. Uh, as soon as I saw this, I decided to reach out to someone who'd written one of my favorite books about F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby. 
um, and uh, to have her on the podcast. Sarah Churchwell wrote this amazing book called Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. And uh, it's just an absolutely incredible book. She's a professor of American literature and public understanding at the University of London in the UK. She's an expert in 20th and 21st century American literature and cultural history, especially the 20s and 30s. She was a judge for the 2014 Man Booker Prize, 2016 Bailey Gifford Prize, and the 2019 Sunday Times Prize. Uh, She's written a book on Marilyn Monroe. She's written a book about the American dream and a book about Gone with the Wind, which I'm looking forward to reading and we'll probably have her back on the podcast. I absolutely love Gatsby. I'm writing about Gatsby in the Justice book. I've written about him. Uh, I've written about Fitzgerald many, many times on the podcast. Uh, The Crack Up is an incredible book that I would also recommend, a very sad, haunting memoir about discipline and uh, let's say destiny also. Um, thank you to Professor Churchwell for coming on the podcast. Thank you to Miss Cars for influencing me. And uh, I think you're going to be surprised at how stoic this episode is. And uh, hopefully my love and admiration for one of the great novels of all time shines through here. Enjoy this conversation about F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby, with the one and only Sarah Churchwell, who you can follow on Twitter at Sarah Churchwell. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. Well, I'm I'm very excited because I loved your book. I thought it was amazing. I was trying to find my copy of here's your book. I was trying to find my copy of The Crack Up, which I could not find, but I found my copy of the of Gatsby from high school, uh, which I've put a few miles on, and then I found uh one of my favorite novels, which is Bud Schulberg's book, The Disenchanted, about, about uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. But what, what I took from your book and what I've always taken from Fitzgerald that's so interesting is that he's this guy that writes with this amazing kind of self-awareness, like he's so aware of what his issues are, his flaws are, human nature, et cetera. 
and then seem to be utterly powerless to do anything about them or with this self-awareness. <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, but I think it also, um, it folk, you know, it focuses on the negative, yes. um, in a way that he did. And, but also in a way that his reputation, his posthumous reputation has encouraged us to do in a way that, it's a little bit counterintuitive because we know he's like this, you know, lauded writer and he's, you know, one of the great American, you know, the great American novelist and the, the canon and everything. And yet for all of the credit and praise that we give him, and especially for Gatsby, there's this way in which people still talk about Fitzgerald as a failure. Mm. Like there's this fundamental way and people are like, what, you know, but he, you know, all these character flaws and whatever. And it's like, but with other great writers, it's like, he was a great writer, Oh, and he had character flaws. Like maybe we need to make sense of that. And with Fitzgerald, it's like, you know, well, he was a great writer, but oh my God, the character flaws. And it just seems to to always kind of overcome our idea of him. And so, yes, I think he was very aware of his shortcomings and that was part of, uh, of what he brought to his art. I think he was incredibly sensitive. Um, I always think, and not in like a kind of you know, uh, 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 you know, easily bruised way, but I mean the way that he talk, the way that he describes Gatsby at the beginning mm. of the novel as being like a human Geiger counter who could register impressions from everybody and everywhere, and I think that was his great gift. And as you know, as the old cliche has it, you know, your great gift is, uh, you know, your greatest strength is often, you know, your a version of your greatest failing as well. So I think he was also, he, yes, he was intensely aware of his failings, but he was intensely aware of his genius too. He knew it. Yes. And and I think I think our story about him should allow for both because he knew both. Well, yeah, that's an, an interesting point because. Uh, it's not like we made up this idea that he was this failure. He kind of saw himself that way. And maybe what both reactions are rooted in is not objectively what he did or didn't accomplish. It's that he could have done so much more. And so there's this kind of bitter sweetness to his story in which he's like indisputably the greatest novelist of the 20th century. And yet you know, he dies so young, he's not fully appreciated in his time, but I think even he would have readily admitted that he left a lot on the table that he could have written but didn't. Oh, absolutely, right? So, so the, the unfulfilled potential yes. is heartbreaking, right? It's he's like an athlete, heartbreaking. A, a great yeah. athlete that gets struck down in their prime. Absolutely. So exactly. So here's a man who is, as you say, is is uh, widely acknowledged as one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, if not the greatest in some people's estimation. And that is that uh, reputation is based solely on two novels, basically. I mean, some people will argue that the unfinished last tycoon is part of it. Very few people will argue that the site of paradise are beautiful and damned have much to do with that at all. So it fundamentally rests on on two novels, and some would say on one you know, on the one masterpiece that is Gatsby. So absolutely, the the sense of unfinished potential. And not only is was that something that he was very aware of, you know, that happened during his life, as you say, and that he was very aware of, but it's actually something I've written about in my scholarship about him is that dogged him even from the beginning, from the reception of this side of paradise, from the moment that he entered into the public you know, domain, all of his critics were like, so much potential, but will he live up to it? And by the time he was 24, they were accusing him of not having lived up to his potential. And he was like, you know, give me a break. So Gatsby was really a conscious effort to live up to his potential. Hmm. And he was like, they keep telling me. So, he, you know, he was 28 when he wrote Gatsby, which also is worth bearing in mind. 28 years old to write that masterpiece. And he'd been working publishing at that point for eight years. And, and you know, at, at, a, at a huge, you know, at a 
fast tilt. He was just, you know, prolific and pouring stuff out. And all of that time, they kept saying, no, nope, but will he fulfill his potential? But will he, you know, and at some point, he was like, my God, what do I have to do to make you think I've fulfilled my potential? And so he writes, you know, Gatsby. And 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 for me, you know, I I, I am reluctant to, um, to it's it's easy to psychologize Fitzgerald and people like to do it and and I and I try to I try to you know um, resist the temptation as much as possible but I think it is important that we recognize that he pinned so much um, personal hope and ambition and desire and sense of his self worth as an artist on Gatsby and its comparative failure uh, devastated him. And in my view, it really precipitated his spiral. He had a drinking problem to begin with, for sure. He had, you know, the, the problems with focus and with, under, with, with choosing between whether to be popular or to be artistic that defined a lot of his output. But with Gatsby, he made this choice that he was going to write a masterpiece and then it was met with bafflement. And that I think he, I think he lost a lot of his self-confidence and a lot of his momentum at that point. Yeah, there's probably some similarities between him and someone like John Kennedy Toole, although uh, Fitzgerald gets so much more validation and respect in his time. But yeah, you you produce this heartbreaking work of staggering genius, and it, it you know that it's there, and then the public basically gaslights you about it. You know, your editor doesn't fully understand, the public doesn't appreciate it. It would be if you were trying to write something to prove something to people or or you needed something from the audience it just makes you so incredibly vulnerable and it 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 can dash your your hopes to pieces because the world you know is fundamentally indifferent to what you needed to get out of like what you needed from the public when you made this thing Absolutely. And to go back to that point at the beginning, that that aspect to which if we see him as that Geiger counter that he that he describes Gatsby as, that means he's unbelievably sensitive to criticism as yes. well as to praise. And and so he could fall apart when when and, and, and as he did after that. I mean, I think he really was devastated. Um, he was devastated that even the smartest people that he knew, the people whose critical wisdom he trusted the most didn't get it either. And, um, you know, and that includes H.L. Mencken, Edmund Wilson, the great critics of the day who were also his friends. And they were, and and he wrote this famous letter to Edmund Wilson, you know, who was a close friend of his saying, none of the reviews, not even the most positive has any idea what this book is about. Yeah. So he, he just knew from the beginning that they just had no idea what he was doing. I'm actually going further and, and um, I, I'll have to send you this essay when I finished it. Um, I'm doing actually a couple. Uh, um, I, I think we've totally misread the novel. You heard it here first. I think we I think we got it wrong. OK. Um, and um, and I have a theory. I, I think because if you actually go back and look at what the reviews said. They talked about the stuff that we talk about around what we would call the American dream. Now, he didn't, they didn't use that phrase because it wasn't a catchphrase yet. But they talk about the corruption of America by the rich. They talk about the spiritual dreams of America and the way in which the, the, the oligarchy in Long Island has, you know, kind of, you know, made America too materialistic. So they're basically talking about the same set of ideas. And he writes these frustrated, pissed off letters that say nobody has any idea what this novel is about, which to me means that he doesn't think it's really about the American dream in any meaningful sense. What did you so think it's about the, then? Well, I have to finish the essay first. <laughs> I can tell, I will. I do know the answer, but I'm, I'm not going to say it yet. But I, I think that um, I think that he was responding to very specific charges 
Um, and I will say broadly, I think he was responding to specific charges that Wilson had famously brought in an essay in 1922, that he didn't have an aesthetic theory and that he didn't have anything to say. Mm. And I think it, it's a much more conscious, it's a novel about aesthetics and it's consciously about aesthetics. Um, well, it's funny. And, and, I was, uh, I was going through, uh, some I think. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a geek. So that's what I think. <laughs> no, no, that's really interesting. It was funny. I was going through some papers. Uh, my parents sent me this big tub of stuff from my house, uh, when I was a kid and I found this essay that I'd written in high school about about Gatsby, which was largely about, uh, you know, the, the American dream as, as sort of teenage kids are prompted to think about the book at this time. Forced sometimes. But, <laughs> yeah. But, but I, what I, what struck me is, um, uh, what I had liked about Gatsby was what we as adults, I, I tend to see as the sort of hopelessness or like, like Gatsby believes that you can go back in time, that you can recapture the past. And uh, I think the message of the book as an adult, the jaded, cynical version is like, he's wrong to think this. And I wondered if the hopefulness of the book is actually in that idea of, you know, what's what's that famous quote about how uh, progress depends on the irrational man, like that the, the rational person adapts themselves to the world, the irrational person tries to change the world. I wondered if part of the message of Gatsby is actually the celebration of the deranged idealism and hope of, of Gatsby. And maybe that's what Fitzgerald is saying. And so when, when, Pete, when the critics saw it as a sort of indictment of that, they were missing the, they were missing the point that he was actually celebrating these virtues in Gatsby a little bit. Absolutely. I think, look, it's a rom he has a fundamentally romantic, he Fitzgerald has a yes. fundamentally romantic worldview, and so does Gatsby. And the romantic worldview is also a tragic worldview. I mean, it, yeah. it's not a, it's not a sentimental romantic worldview, but it is that idea of of the grandeur of which we are of, of which we are capable, but and, and and that that takes this huge leap of imagination, and and there is an idealism built into that, but also a faith in you know, in uh, uh, human endeavor and in the human imagination. And absolutely, I think it's a novel about, so when I say it's not about the American dream, I mean, I don't mean it's not about those things. Yes. I mean, it's about more than, than that. Sure. And, um, and that, and exactly. And so, you know, I think he sees America as emblematic of, of this, um, uh, you know, uh, that famous ending is the Dutch sailors seeing uh, the whole possibility of of the imaginative realm that anything could happen in the universe, and of course he's invoking there, um, uh, as as I'm sure you'll know, and many of our of our fellow listeners who studied it uh, um, in high school and college will also know, he's invoking there Keats's poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer, the famous scene where the conquistadors uh, see the Pacific for the first time. And he's and he says they're awestruck, and he says um, they're silent upon a peak in Darien, right? Just left awestruck at your first sight of the Pacific, and this image that you see this new continent for the first time, and you look at it, and anything is possible. And what do you do? You build West Egg, you build Long Island, you build Trump's America. Like like that's the trajectory that he's yeah. on. Is like you build Vegas. Like right. you could do anything, and you you know you built paradise. You know um, we had paradise, and we turned it into parking lot. Right. That's yes. the you know, and so so that sense that you that you that you need the madness of dreamers to have done something more than to just build Vegas. When there's a purity, like Gatsby is rich and powerful and has access to all of the things in the American dream, but what does he really want? He wants the purity of young love. 
right? Uh, and I think to me that that's what struck me in high school is that he, you know, Gatsby's not throwing the parties because he likes the parties, right? He's no. throwing the parties. All of it is for this one person to do this yeah. one thing that everyone else has forgotten about and moved past. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that was that's kind of the American dream or the dream that Gatsby is talking about, or that 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 uh, Fitzgerald is talking about, just sort of the purity of of one love between two people. That that the money and the fame and the power, all that stuff, is actually irrelevant or a means to an end for Gatsby. What he actually wants is this this one thing he can't have. Yeah, but I would I I don't disagree with that, but I would push that that even further and say that I think that that in the novel and in Fitzgerald's again kind of romantic conception of of, of what the the kind of moral philosophy in the novel is is that is that is that Gatsby's dreams are too big for the world that he inhabits. And and so he's constantly looking for a target for his free flowing desire for his Mm. ambition and his, and, and this huge, all of these possibilities. And he lands on all of the tritest and most inadequate objects of desire that he could. And yes, it's the house and the car and the parties and stuff. But as you say, he doesn't even like those, but ultimately Daisy's inadequate too. Mm. And, and so it's this, and he's, and he chooses like the worst part. I mean, they're perfectly nice women out there and he chooses like the absolute worst. Right. So the, he's in love with the idea of her, not what she actually is. Well, and, and he's, and he's in, but he's in search of something commensurate to his capacity for wonder Mm. as the famous, you know, as the novel closes. So to me, that's, that's what Fitzgerald's talking about is that we have this capacity for wonder and and can we find something in the world that is commensurate to that? Or can we build something in the world that is commensurate to that? Instead of just settling for the obvious things that our society offers us, like pop songs about love that sure. convinces us that what I really need is a pure love when in fact, if we're adults, we know there's no such thing. And I think yeah. part of what Fitzgerald thinks is that Gatsby should have grown out of that. So yes, he admires him. Uh, he admires his devotion. He admires his his doggedness, his irrational um, desire or, or irrational com- commitment, as you say. But he also recognizes that it's effed up and that he should have moved on. <laughs> and that's why Gatsby dies, right? <laughs> well, what's interesting, too, is like uh, there's probably something in our reception to the novel that's similar to what's happening in the novel, which is you have Gatsby, this sort of big dreaming figure who's who's. Um, uh, dreams are bigger than reality, as you said. And then there's also Caraway, who's the the sort of observer. He's he's the he, he's the writer of the book, essentially. But he's also kind of the cynical reality of it all, sort of judging as it goes along. In some cases, superior. In some cases, you know, admiring of Gatsby. Um, and that's kind of the role that the public has taken with the book and with Fitzgerald. And Fitzgerald probably embodies himself too, which is like, we like the Gatsby figures, but we are more comfortable in the living in the tiny house next door, wondering how uh, unhappy they are, examining their flaws, you know, not trying to do better ourselves, but just to kind of be watching them the way that we watch pop culture now. And uh, like, it's this play that's happening in front of us instead of actual real life. I think so, but I I absolutely agree with that. But I also think that we need we need Nick because we need his um, his ambivalence. We need his sense that this this push pull and irony that he has. So yeah, as you say, he is cynical in many ways, but he is also romantic in some ways, and he's the only one who can see beyond Gatsby's exterior yeah. to the romantic beneath. And 
you know, the analogy that I often use when I'm teaching Gatsby is to say, you know, if this novel were written today, and in fact, there has been a, a, a recent adapt, not too long ago, within the last 10 years, adaptation that did something similar, Gatsby would be a Russian oligarch, right? Mm. He would be a Russian oligarch who's made his money in a way that we know is shady by yes. definition, yes. but we don't know specifically what crimes he committed. Mm-hmm. But he pops up in the neighborhood and he's a Russian oligarch. And so, you know, the guy is dodgy, yes. but you go to his parties and he abs and every, and you think his taste is pretty bad, but wow, he's got a lot of money and everybody wants to be there. And you know, he's a thug and is, and he's affected. He's pretentious. And you can see through all of his pretensions. And then the thing that's amazing is to turn out that this man has the soul of an artist. Yes. That this man is the most sensitive of all of the people around him. And you thought he was just a thug, but actually he's the idealist and the people around him are the thugs. Yes. Now, and that to me is the turn of the novel, right? Um, and, and you need Caraway to see that because you have to have that extra set of eyes to take you through that turn so that Gadsby's greatness is ironic. That he is great. He's also very much not great. He's tawdry. He's a tawdry showman, the great Gatsby. You know, come up and yeah. see the great Gatsby. And he's also kind of great. No, that's a fascinating point because our relationship with prohibition has so fundamentally changed. We now see them as heroic, infamous, interesting characters who were fighting something that was fundamentally unjust. It's hard for us to see what role in society uh, Gatsby was playing at that time. And Oligarch, you know, immediately brings up the sort of negative connotation and the judgment that that Fitzgerald was playing with at the time, that that the effect is just not as potent now. It's, it's Speaking of, of Schulberg, it's like when you read What Makes Sammy Run now, you're like, wait, he's supposed to be the bad guy? Like, exactly. I, you know, like, isn't that how <laughs> everyone is? You know, you exactly. and, and you're also just even missing the subtle anti-Semitism that the book is playing with because uh, that that's not the kind of Sam- anti-Semitism that we're worried about today. Exactly. Exactly. And so, exactly, our morals have fallen so far yes, that they yes. would that we think they're we think they're bad guys are kind of fine, you know. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the you know the other analogy besides oligarch, you know, and to go back to the point about prohibition, yeah, we've romanticized it, but it was illegal. So you know, he's a he's effectively a drug dealer. Yeah. Right. To all intents and purposes. So he's a drug dealer in a society. That it's like, the, you know, you do said it in the 80s and he's a coke dealer and yeah. everybody is doing coke and everybody likes to go to his parties because you get absolutely the best Colombian cocaine going. Yeah. But would but would you really want to run away with him and marry him? You know, and and then Daisy becomes, you know, you, you understand Daisy's resistance better when you when when it becomes clear that he is a bootlegger. We kind of shrug, our, as you say, we kind of shrug off being a bootlegger. But it is like saying, you know, the guy you're having an affair with is actually a coke dealer. Yes. And would you actually run off with that guy? You become a different person if you do that. So is Scarface and the Great Gatsby essentially the same story? Uh huh. Absolutely. It, it, you know, we, we forget how, I think we forget how much Gatsby is a, is a gangster story and yeah. how much it is, um, because it's so poetic and because it's so romantic and we're not used to lyrical gangster stories. We expect yeah. them to be hard boiled. We expect them to sound like Hemingway, not like Fitzgerald, but this is, this is absolutely a gangster story. And, and it is, you know, he, he was writing, he's actually, again, as always, Fitzgerald is so ahead of his time. 
just as the mania for gangster stories is about to take hold in America. So, you know, Dashiell Hammett starts writing, you know, Red Harvest comes out in 1929, right? And then you get the the early film noir in the early 1930s as, as you know, uh, um, you get Scarface, and, and but you also get, you know, the early filming of, of, um, of the multi, you know, well, the multi spot is later, but you know what I mean? The, sure. the early film, you know, the, then the early Hammett stuff that gets done, even the thin man, which is 34. So a lot of that stuff is coming out while Fitzgerald is still alive, while he's still writing, while he's in and out of, um, of Hollywood. And the, and, and so, you know, I, I often think that the, the 1949 film version of Gatsby by the Alan Ladd black and white version, which you can get on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's absolutely bonkers, right? It bears very, very little resemblance to the novel, um, and 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 the ending is like insane. Um, but um, but there's one thing that it gets right, and I think in an interesting way. First of all, it casts Alan Ladd, the the kind of you know iconic gangster of his day of the '40s, so that instantly when the when the audience sees him, they think gangster, so they know Gatsby's a gangster. It's you know they 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 t- uh, cast him very much to type and use his typecast um, for the purposes of the story. And it opens with a montage of like gangster shots in the 20s. Because remember in 1949, you, you, you have an audience that remembers Prohibition yeah. if they're adults. Yeah. And, and they don't show it as glamorous parties. They show it as shoots out, uh, shootouts in cars. It's a right. Capone-style story. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter just like a couple weeks weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using doordash today for eligible users only terms apply the daily stoic is brought to you by progressive insurance one of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening but depending on what you're doing right now like for instance if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle there's something else you could be doing you could be getting an auto quote from progressive insurance it's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone drivers who save by switching to progressive save nearly seven hundred dollars on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts, discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. 
No, that's so interesting. Yeah, the other gangster in the book that that I'm fascinated with, and I wrote about him. I, I did this book, Conspiracy, about uh, Peter Thiel and his uh, attempt mm. to destroy Gawker a few years ago. And I opened the book with one of my favorite sections in Gatsby, which is when when Gatsby meets uh, Mayor Wolfsheim, and mm. and and he uh, he. He's thinking about the 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 the, the 1919 World Series, and he, he says he has this amazing line. He goes, "I thought of this as something that had simply happened. The idea yes. that a singular person was responsible for it, you know, it it it." It, it had never occurred to him. And I think about that all the time. We think about so much of what happens in the world, whether we're talking about civil rights or a, a world war breaking out or, you know, somebody inventing something. We think about the things that we that happen to us in life as things that simply happen. The idea that there's these singular figures, these dreamers uh, who, who, the, who, who can transform the world through their either their greed or their avarice or their, you know, their, their earnestness or their, their, you know, desire to prove something to someone. To me, that's one of the most remarkable scenes of the book that, that, that he's like, Oh wait, this is the guy. The news isn't this show that's happening. There are real people behind the things that shape our lives. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's that final phrase there that, that for me, you know, puts, puts the finger on it, which is that, um, and I, I love that bit too, where Nick is, his mind is blown at the idea that a, he says, you know, a single person playing with the fate of a nation, right? Yeah. That a single person could do this. Um, and of course, because another one of the themes of the novel that we haven't really yet touched on, although it relates to the point about, about you know, you need these irrational dreams to do something big, is that it is about the will to power. It yeah. is, you know, it is a fundamentally Nietzschean idea, and it's fundamentally about human agency and what can humans make happen. And, and as you say, how can we shape the world and how can we shape destiny and how can we shape our society? And, um, and what happens when those very, very big dreams go wrong? Yes. Um, and, and what happens when, again, when your world is inadequate to your very big dreams, do you start, does, is that in itself corrupting? Does yes. that in itself mean that you start to make, you know, that, that you start to do bad things just to do something? Mm-hmm. Just to you know, there there's a bit in um oh god, what's it in? I should remember. Is it? It, it might be in the rich boy. Um, I'll find. I I will have to find it and email it to you because okay. it's gonna irritate me that I that I can't remember where it is. But it's um it's definitely in Fitzgerald somewhere. Um, and it's in early Fitzgerald. And and basically he says um oh maybe it's in Dalrymple goes wrong. Anyway, he says that that because he couldn't be a great man, he decided to be a criminal because it was the next best thing. Mm. Right. And that, and so it's, I think it is in Dolly Rimple goes wrong and that it's, um, and it's basically this conscious choice to say, look, I want to do something great. And if it can't be world building, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll destroy it. And, um, and, and again, and, and that's very, if I'm, if I'm remembering rightly where that is, it's, it's 1920, 1919. It's one of his very first published stories. He sees that very, very clearly from the beginning. And that's the choice that Gatsby makes too, is that it's not, is people always think if I can't get Daisy, he always think his choice is if I can't get Daisy, honestly, I'll get her dishonestly. But I think it's bigger. It's I'm going to make my mark. And if I can't do it, honestly, I'll do it dishonestly. Yes. Yes. He's a, uh, he has some vision of himself as a great man and exactly. he needs to find some confirmation in that it's either having Daisy, it's being rich, honestly, dishonestly, it doesn't matter. You have the great quote from, exactly. from, from Mark Twain 
uh, in the book that flips that. He says, you know, make as much. It's he's, quote, he's talking about Jay Gould, where he says, um, you know, make as much money if you uh, as you can, uh, uh, honestly, if you must. Right, like exactly. it's fa- it's faster exactly. and yeah. easier, and you can make yeah. a bigger mark by breaking the rules, cheating the system, doing the wrong thing. Precisely. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I was fascinated by with Peter Thiel. I was fascinated and horrified as you have this guy who, uh, you know, early in his career, he's outed by this website. They out him as gay and he finds mm. this to be this traumatic, uh, painful moment. And we don't have to judge whether it was or it wasn't. Uh, that's what it was to him. And sure. it sets in motion this series of events that leads to, you know, a stolen sex tape and a lawsuit. And the public is following this story as it happens, thinking that it is one thing. And then it's only after this $100 million verdict comes in and a, a media outlet is basically wiped off the face of the earth that it, it turns out there was a guy behind it. You know, there was yeah. there was the gangster or the oligarch behind it who was doing it for some reason that there was the public facing reason and then there's the real reason underneath the the wanting to make a mark the will to power the needing to prove something to someone um and i yeah the the world is shaped by those events this is why people run for power that uh, run for for president this is why people buy social networks that they don't need you know like there's some sort of oh, deep thing <laughs> yeah right there's there's something that they're trying to prove to someone i mean you want to get really gatsby-esque uh there's i don't know if you saw this but in the in the twitter lawsuit with elon musk one of the texts is from his ex-wife sending him a message talking about how upset she is about the political correctness and censorship on Twitter, right? Like there's always the reason. And then there's the deep seated, you know, the, well, Daisy wants me to do it reason. Yeah. (laughs) No, exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, Fitzgerald was always fascinated by those sorts of figures and those sorts of stories. I mean, that's what The Last Tycoon is about, too. That Those people went to Hollywood in yeah. the 30s, and that's partly why he turns his attention to them, because those are the world builders yeah. at that time. And um, and he was absolutely fascinated by the, by the, by the way in which he wasn't interested in, in geopolitics in any kind of, um, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but he, in an activist sense, he was much more politically aware than people think he was. Um, and, um, and, and his correspondence makes that clear. He was, you know, he attended communist parties. He, I mean, communist, communist party meetings. I mean, yeah. communist parties. he would have gone to, he would have gone <laughs> to communist parties. He would have brought the champagne. Yeah. He absolutely would have brought the champagne, champagne socialist to the end. That's Fitzgerald to, uh, uh, to a T. But, um, you know, this side of paradise has a lot about socialism in it and, um, and, and Amory Blaine's kind of flirtation, you know, his alter ego's flirtation with socialism in it. He was certainly politically aware. And, and he gave, I talk about this in my book, but he gave a really remarkable interview in 1926 with the New Yorker where he basically predicted World War II. Oh. Um, and he, um, you know, and, and it just, he, he was very, very aware. Right. And, and so this idea that he was an apolitical figure is, is, is ignorant and foolish, but he was interested in where politics meets culture. He was interested in where politics meets art because art and culture were where, you know, his heart was. And so that's why I think he, you know, he loved that idea of the last tycoon because you could have that. I mean, that's the title, right? The, the last tycoon. And there he is. And you can, and you can have this power and this, um, you know, and this uh, world building, you know, 
uh, um, influence. Um, but what kind of person are you? And what happens when a romantic gets in that position? That's what he was. Thugs didn't interest him as much. But you know, I mean, he has a, he has a note. I absolutely love this, and I think it's just in his notebooks. But he he jotted down when he walked past Rockefeller Center. Um, uh, not long before he died, um, and it was words to the effect of to think all this was just built by a racketeer. Yes. Right? So you know Rockefeller's a racketeer. He knew they were all racketeers. He knew that they were all you know. And when um, at the end of Gatsby, I, students always always read this bit wrong. So I'm always trotting this out to try to like make it clear to them um, that when Gatsby's when Gatsby's father, when Henry Gatz comes back um, for the funeral, and he says if he'd lived, he would have been a great man. Um, he would have a man like James J. Hill, he would have built the country, right? And and you have to know that James J. Hill was a racketeer. You have to know that he was a Peter Thiel kind of a figure. He was an yeah. Elon Musk kind of a figure. He was a, a household named billionaire who destroyed everything. And I'm not slandering Musk or Thiel, but was accused of murder, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, Hill was widely, uh, it was widely assumed that he had committed homicide in part of his railroad battles with um, Harriman. And that and so when when the people are like oh he would have been a great man like James J. Hill I'm like no no that's not a good thing it's like saying you know if he'd lived he would have been a great man like Trump or he would yeah. have been a great man like Rupert Murdoch or he would have been a great man like Elon Musk you have to hear the deep deep irony in that yeah it's it's interesting how laundered these things become not that long after the fact I'm I'm writing a little bit about Truman now and he he gave this speech on the floor of the Senate where he he he's he's basically castigating the um the uh, the Carnegie libraries. He's like these things are soaked in blood, you know. Um, and and exactly. these ideas now we see these industrialists as these sort of heroes or these sort of Ayn Randian figures where they're stripped of the violence inherent in what was required to do that. Even Gatsby, right? He's already the made man. We're not seeing the gunfights with the police or the we're we're not seeing the violence that would have been inherent in becoming that rich and that successful at such a fundamentally illegal thing. Absolutely. And and the all we have in the novel to to remind us of that is Nick saying during the the confrontation scene at the plaza he says Nick uh, he said Nick says that Gatsby has this extraordinary look on his face and it takes him a minute to to identify it and then he says I then I realized what it was he looked as if he'd killed a man. Yes. Um, so there's this hint of murderousness, or it's explicit, but this yeah. implication of murderousness that that Nick suddenly recognizes. But exactly right. So what they were doing, right? They, they, the philanthropic project, building Rockefeller Center, building universities, building libraries, you know, creating foundations, was precisely to whitewash their reputations, yeah. and it worked. Yes. To the point where a hundred years later, most people don't realize, as you say, that they were thugs. And then they went, and you know, and in my view, you know, I mean, I'll get even more political if I want to, but I mean, in my view, by definition, anybody who becomes a billionaire has done has, has you don't become a billionaire honestly. Yeah. You just don't. Um, you've done something unethical at a minimum. You've at least exploited the hell out of your workers and refused to pay them and and not given them holiday and made them pee in a jar. You know, you've at least behaved in sure. in very very bad objectionable ways in order to become a billionaire in the first place. And then we admire them when they give some of the money back. And I'm like, well, how about you don't become a billionaire in the first place? <laughs> well, you, you know, Fitzgerald talks a lot about virtue, right? And and mm -hmm. at one point at the beginning, he was of, a moralist. Yeah, you know, at the beginning, sorry to interrupt, but I mean. Yeah, yeah. At the, Sorry, at the beginning please, of yeah. at the beginning of Gatsby, he says something like, "One suspects, uh, one always suspects themselves of at least one of the cardinal virtues." He talks about honesty, but you know what? 
what you have to be to be a Gatsby, an oligarch, or a billionaire is to fundamentally reject the virtue of temperance or discipline or, or you know, you fundamentally have to give yourself over to a kind of greed or an inability to be satisfied, which is at the core of who Gatsby was. Ironically, also the core of who Fitzgerald was in a more pedestrian sense, right? There was never enough pleasure or alcohol or fun or, you know, money for him, but, but at a much more human level, not at the sort of Shakespearean or Gatsby-esque level. Yes, although I'm going to I'm going to defend Fitzgerald again and point out that that all of the work that he did mitigates against that. Mm. So, you know, that he he sat down and he and he wrote this masterpiece. Right. Um, He he wrote and yet tender took him nine years to do. He wrote an enormous number of stories. He wrote he was writing all of the time and not all of it's good. It's uneven. And sometimes he was drinking and sometimes he was drinking when he was writing and sometimes he was hungover when he was writing. And and that was, you know, and, and his alcoholism was a real problem. But I don't think his egotism was a problem in that sense. No. He had a fundamental discipline when it came to his art. Yeah. And he and he had an almost religious feeling about his obligation to it. He was. He also had a religious feeling of his failure to live up to that obligation. Um, but he also he was absolutely a moralist at heart, and he he always said um, he said more than once, and he got pissed off at Hemingway. It was through the after the snows of Kilimanjaro uh, um, uh, kind of exchange when Hemingway lied about him and slammed him um, and introduced him basically in print in 1936 in Esquire. And and Fitzgerald wrote him a really angry letter, particularly for Fitzgerald, who is a very um, forgiving guy, actually. Well, he held a grudge in a different way, but he was he could be a very, very magnanimous person. And he, and he wrote this uh, and often was. And he wrote this letter to Hemingway that said, lay off me in print and stop saying that I'm interested in riches, because this is the famous line from The Snows of Kilimanjaro when he says he thought of poor Julian and then his name gets changed to, to he thought of poor Scott Fitzgerald and then his name get, gets changed to Julian in later, um, in later versions. And he says, and his fascination with the rich. And Fitzgerald wrote him and said, riches have never fascinated me, only what can be done with them, right? He understood that it speaking of agency as we were earlier that that's what money is for he's interested in what money creates he's not interested in money for its own sake and he was never interested in the rich because they were rich he was interested in rich people who did interesting things and and that was like like Gerald and Sarah Murphy you know who were artists and painters and created this beautiful world he knew lots of rich crass people who he didn't give the time of day to that's true. Have you? Uh, I, I know your work on sort of novelists and 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 the writing process. Have you read any of Stephen Pressfield's stuff? Do you know who he is? Mm-mm, so no. he wrote this great novel. He, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance. He wrote this book uh, called oh, okay. Gate, Gate, Gates of Fire, which is one of the most sort of popular books about the Spartans. Anyways, he, he's written these great novels, but he also wrote this book called The War of Art, which is incredibly popular with creative people, sold millions of copies. But it, it might be worth uh, thinking about as you study Fitzgerald, because to me, uh, so so the basic premise of The War of Art is that we all have this creative calling, this destiny, or every every writer or artist does. And we sit down to do it. And the reason we don't do it is there's this thing between us and that which he calls the resistance. And that resistance is this sort of inner demon that we're all battling with. And to me, Fitzgerald is the quintessential example of somebody who 
fights their whole life against the resistance. You have a beautiful passage in the book where he's talking about like how he, what he had to show for like three years work. He had like lots of fun parties, lots of memories, lots of things. And then like a couple short stories. And Fitzgerald just strikes me as, you know, a, a cautionary, beautiful, sometimes triumphant, sometimes uh, defeated example of someone who's battling with the capital R resistance this thing that dogs all creative people that prevents us from putting our butt in the chair when we should or you know get, creates distractions self doubt makes us incredibly sensitive to what other people say or th- just all the all the noise or friction that gets between us and you know fully putting the gift on the page yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think that i think that Fitzgerald would would have responded you know very uh uh probably pretty openly to that. I think, yeah, he absolutely would have recognized himself in that. I mean, you know, he, he calls Dick Diver a spoiled priest in tender and, and people always, um, uh, often use that phrase to describe Fitzgerald as well. And, and by spoiled, he doesn't mean, um, indulged. He means corrupted. He means ruined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that he has the kind of spirit of a spoiled priest that he, that he let himself go to waste, that he let himself go to rot. Um, and and that was what ate away at him. Yeah. Oh man, it's so haunting. Um, so, d- did you have a chance to read the adjuster? I'm sure you'd already read it. Oh, I know it well. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite F. Scott Fitzgerald story, and I was just I was just writing about it recently interesting. because interesting. Oh, you have to tell me why it's your favorite. You're literally the first person I've ever heard say it's their favorite. I don't, I don't know why it struck me. Um, it's so beautiful. So so I ended up connecting it to uh, there's a famous story that Maxwell Perkins tells when he's a young man. Uh, and his, his friend is drowning and, uh, he, he swims away sort of in self-interest trying to get free and then decides, uh, no, he has to go back. And he says, the lesson I took from this is to never refuse a responsibility. Right. And to me, the, the story of, um, the adjuster, although it's kind of this weird, trippy, strange, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's a particularly well-written story. It seems like something he, he threw out to, to make it in a newspaper. But the core message to me is about this sort of childish, immature woman who comes face to face with responsibility and she gets delivered this lesson, which I think is so beautiful. She says, well, I want to stay warm by the fire. And he says, no, like, uh, we have to make the fire. Like we, people, yeah. people are warmed by us. I don't know. I, I just have always taken it as a, as a really interesting sort of lesson or, or moral take on, you know, what it means to become an adult, to become responsible. Yeah. And that that's also kind of the battle of Fitzgerald's life. He's this incredibly talented person who basically spends a lot of his life as a man child. And then at the end, He's responsible for his daughter and his wife and his health is failing. And he, he realizes that there's not much left time on his gift and he's forced to become responsible. Mm. I mean, I would, again, I don't disagree, but I would just shade it slightly different again. And it's just, well, it's just my take for, you know, it's, but is that, is is that I think he was always responsible, Mm. but I, but I, but in a different way, but I think he always felt he always felt that sense of responsibility and he took accountability. Um, he, he was not somebody who evaded the consequences of his own choices. And he always, he always knew that he was responsible for his family's well-being, And the, and the friction between him and Zelda was often about his sense that she was the one who was, you know, the selfish wife as in the adjuster. Um, 
and that he had to take on all of the burdens. One of the things that's interesting about reading The Adjuster is that it's written in 1925, but in many ways it it, it kind of weirdly, uncannily prophesies Zelda's yes. breakdown five years later. Um, and the sense that 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 the selfish woman um, is is you know, and so there's a wish fulfillment here. I think one way of reading the story is is what would happen if the selfish woman stepped up and took responsibility too. Yes. Um, uh, certainly, Fitzgerald had to take more responsibility as time went on because he couldn't make the money as easily, and so the accountability weighed heavier and heavier and heavier on his shoulders. And that sense of of of, of a responsibility that he was insouciant about in youth, um, that he took, that, that became a burden in adulthood is in his full maturity is where I completely agree with you. But I, I don't, I don't think he was ever, he was never really, he was irresponsible in the sense that he drank too much and like, you know, but, but he, but he paid his bills and he, you know, one of the things interesting, you know, you talk about, about Perkins and stuff, you know, his, um, his correspondence with Perkins, the business correspondence with Perkins, is fascinating from from this angle. Wouldn't be interesting to anybody except the most diehard Fitzgerald geeks. But he, because he, he, you know, he refused to to let Perkins was trying to pay him in advance. Right, this the idea of an advance was a new thing. Sure. And Perkins kept offering him an advance. And Fitzgerald's like, no, I don't. I don't think I should do that. I don't think we should do it like that. And then he ended up kind of needing advances all of the time, yes. right? So, but he considered it a loan. And he was absolutely scrupulous about keeping track of how much he owed, paying it back, and constantly writing Perkins and saying, how much do I owe you? Here's how I'm going to pay you back. Here's how I'm going to do it. So he was not the guy who was like, oh, lend me another hundred bucks, and then I'm going to go blow it on a party, and oh, and then I'm going to go dip into somebody else's pocket. He kept a ledger. He was he was absolutely scrupulous about that. So he had this real sense of, um, it, it, he just was always outspending what he earned. Um, you know, so he was profligate in that sense. He was a wastrel in that sense, but not in the sense that he didn't, he didn't think that he owed it back to anybody. And that's one of the things I love about, um, about Babylon Revisited and, and indeed about many of his, about uh, many of his great uh, late stories, um, is this sense that those stories are all about the fact that debts always come due at some point, moral debts, artistic debts, personal debts, you're going to have to pay your debts. And that that this idea of a promissory note that that will get redeemed, um, and even that metaphor he uses that metaphor of the promissory note more than once in his fiction, and that it comes back again and again and again that you took this promissory note out on life, and life comes and makes you pay back that debt. Well, and, goes- and that's fundamentally how he saw it, I think. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. 
With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Yeah, when you're when we were talking about self-awareness earlier, that is what's so interesting about Fitzgerald. There's different kinds of addicts, right? There's the addict who, when you sit them down at the intervention, they're like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, uh, I, I didn't do all that. And then if if you had sat F. Scott Fitzgerald down for an intervention, he would have been well aware of everything he'd ever done wrong. He would have felt profoundly guilty about all of it. You know, he 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 would have known the debts or troubles that he caused for people. He had this sense. So, so I think that's it's an interesting notion of responsibility, right? There's there there is the sense that he's aware of what he should be doing and aware that he's not always doing it. He's just like all of us, not fully able to be the sort of moral person or the responsible person that he wants to be for a for a variety of reasons: cultural reasons, his marriage, his addictions, you know, it, the the curse of his profession, the reality of making a living. All these things kind of get in the way of who I think he would like to be. And he probably fantasizes, I think, like if he had family money, all of this would be easier, right? Like he wouldn't be as- Of course. He spends time around these people who just seem to have this kind of effortless life that that is just so far from his experience. I think that is also partly his fascination with the rich. He just goes, you know, if I had a famous name or if I had done this or that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in the pain or distress that I am in. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, I could be the gentleman writer, not whatever I am. Yeah, but that's what The Rich Boy is about, right? Which is the next great masterpiece after Gatsby and is about, a, you know, being, destro- being destroyed by wealth and, um, and by inherited wealth. And, you know, he, and that's based on his friend Ludlow Fowler. He watched it really, really closely. So his... You know, his moral intelligence was such that he that he could see how all of these different things could destroy people. And, you know, I think that, yes, I think that he he very few he is one of those of whom it can truly be said, as Oscar Wilde said, that he could resist anything except temptation. And um, and but but, you know, he wasn't tempted sexually, for example. Uh, he wasn't particularly unfaithful to, to Zelda, especially given the, the opportunities and, and how things played out for them. Um, but he was but he was tempted by beauty. Yeah. He was always tempted by the and glamour. Yes. Uh, not the not the tawdry glamour that many people think he was tempted by, but he was tempted by by again potential. He was tempted by the potential for glamour and by the potential for romance and by the potential for something extraordinary to happen. And he kept wanting to go where it was likely to happen. And he was tempted by experience. Yeah. So he, he, he wanted to be where something extraordinary might take place. Yeah. Um, 
But again, it's easy to overstate that because there were plenty of times when he stayed home to write The Great Gatsby, you know, to write Tender is the Night and to write those 178 stories that he wrote that did not write themselves. So we can overstate the degree to because he was such a flamboyant presence when he was at those parties and because he was, you know, absolutely trolleyed more often than not and making a spectacle of himself. And he behaved very badly when he was drunk. So the stories become very legendary. Um, So all of that is all very true. But I think he was also somebody who was. You know, you said you talked earlier about moderation. He was certainly not a moderate guy, yeah. Scott Fitzgerald. He was very, very much a kind of all or nothing character. And so when he was writing, he was really fully disciplined and he was really committed to what he was doing. And then he would go on a bender and blow off all of that steam. And then he would pull it, you know, marshal his resources and then focus and do it again. Yeah. I mean, that's the war of art, right? It's like sitting alone in your room, uh, writing by hand or a party on the French Riviera. And that one is more fun than the other. Exactly. I mean, you know, (laughs) I mean, Cole Porter or, you know, ruled, you know, notebook. Many of us would make the Cole Porter choice. (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, we were talking about athletes earlier. He's like an athlete that's cut down in his prime. He also strikes me as, you know, you watch those old clips of athletes and they're like, they're smoking in the locker room at halftime. They're doing Coke or whatever. Like, you know, this wasn't, there wasn't the culture of discipline around the craft at that time because so many of the writers were these like gentlemen, uh, uh, you know, philosopher types or, or they were, they were these candles that burnt out very quickly. It wasn't like today where you see it as an elite profession that requires certain habits and skills and practice it. Like he was, you know, he was a, a product of that time. And that time was, of course, you can drink to blackout drunk on a regular, consistent basis and and send your kid away to be watched by someone else. And there's no consequences for that. And and as you as you talk a lot about at the beginning of the book, you can drive with no seatbelt at obscene <laughs> speeds and on roads with no streetlights. And, you know, there wasn't we they hadn't experienced all the consequences of those things that we today have built up responses to. They were the trial and error. And he learned a lot of painful lessons that we benefit from. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. But I also think, you know, he says, um, he, he wrote to uh, to an old friend, I talked about this in the book too, but a, an old friend called Ted Paramore, who was, a, they were, uh, they wrote a screenplay together and they there was a lot of friction and working on it. And Paramore wasn't taking Fitzgerald's um, suggestions and he got really pissed off and he wrote Paramore this letter saying, I did not write several bestsellers and 150, you know, um, um, high paid, you know, magazine stories, um, uh, uh, with the, with the lack of something like the, without the, the, the judgment or discipline of a child. Right. Yeah. And so, and so he talks about there about the importance of discipline is just, you know, that, and that was his pissed off quick response of like, stop, you know, of course I had discipline. I had to have discipline to do what I did. Um, it's baked in, it's definitional. And of course he had great judgment. It's baked in. And the thing that, that, you know, the kind of stereotype of Fitzgerald that I'm always, you know, pushing back against because it just irritates the hell out of me, um, is this, this story of the inspired amateur that this guy exactly who partied and when it was blackout drunk and was all of this stuff. And then, oh, and then he sat down and casually, you know, tripped and wrote the great, he was a pro. (laughs) He was a total pro. You know, one of the things I'll tell you about Gatsby that I was like, is that he, um, as you say, he was handwriting, um, and he was handwriting on, uh, on, on ruled paper. And he, um, he told Perkins as he was writing Gatsby that he reckoned it was about 50,000 words. This was before it was typed. And of course they didn't have Microsoft word to tell them what their word count was. Yeah. 
um, he said he thought it was about 50,000 words and it was 48,850 words. And he knew that because he was a pro. Yeah. Right. He, he, he had a sense of how long stuff was, how many days had been in it. What, what's the normal result of that many days. And he just he, had he'd that, been writing that magazine feel. fiction. He'd, he'd been writing magazine fiction to length for years. So he yeah. knew what the lengths were the same way a journalist, you know, today will know when you've, and you know, I'm sure you do journalism. I do a lot of journalism. I know whenever in a thousand word piece, I know whenever in a 3000 word piece, I've just done it so many times. I know what the length is. Yes. And he was a pro. Um, he knew that that was a 50,000 word book. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, there's these subtle tells. Well, so the, the last short story I want to talk to you about because it's my favorite. Uh, you've read The Four Fists, I imagine, yes? Mm, yeah. I, I think that one is such an interesting look at Fitzgerald as the moralist. I love that you love these quirky stories. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I think there's so I, th- I think his absolutely. I think his short story stuff is so often dismissed as schlock or, you know, stuff done for the money. But I, I think one, it's a lot of it's super good. What's the one about the crystal bowl? I love that one too. Um, yeah. The cut glass bowl. Yes. That the one's amazing. Bowl. Um, yeah, but, but, uh, you know, not only I think, are they just objectively good? If you think about, you know, he, he would be someone who would be like popular on social media now, like he, he could, he'd figured out the algorithm, but he was doing something at a level that no one else, like everything else in the medium is crap. And what he was doing was like inspired and amazing. Like I think totally. the, the, the short stories are so good. And if you think about he's delivering these profound moral lessons to people reading news about murders and, you know, all the nonsense of yellow journalism that he was competing with at that time. It's really impressive. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that so many of his stories, we you know, we always talk about like the same five or six stories as if they're yeah. the only ones that he wrote. And all anybody talks about is Babylon Revisited and, you know, um, Dice Palace and, you know, a handful of other ones, right? The Last of the Bells. And, and you know, and I, I agree with you. I think that there are so many um, neglected gems in his, uh, in his short stories. For me, the ones, and even ones that people read, I think they don't get. Yeah. Or, I mean, that's rude, rude, but I feel like they're missing yes. what to me makes them so special. So I would say, um, uh, the diamond as big as the Ritz, which is highly anthologized and people read it. But, but I, I feel like, cause the, the one of the, we haven't talked about this yet, but one of the things that is, um, to me is so central to Fitzgerald and so overlooked today, but at the time people saw it, it was very prominent in his reputation, um, was that he's a satirist and he's funny. And the diamond as big as the Ritz is a, a satire, but B, and more, you know, much more importantly for today, it's a satire of capitalism. It's a satire of monopoly capitalism. And it's about how American monopoly capitalism is built on slavery. And that's something that he sees totally clearly. And the story is very explicit about, and, and it's, and it's, and it is a, it's an, it's a mock allegory of the, of the settlement of America. It's a mock allegory of settler colonialism and monopoly capitalism, beginning with Fitzpatrick Washington, um, who, who goes west from Virginia. I mean, it's, it's like he's got, you know, um, the, so the, um, or is he Fitz, I don't remember his name is, but it's Fitz something, Fitzwilliam, Fitz Culpepper, I can't remember. But anyway, he's, but he's Washington is the point. Um, and so it's clearly, it is this allegory of America and about the, about the, the, the ways in which oligarchical power in, in America was built through monopoly capitalism. So I think that's such a pertinent story right now, but it just needs to be read on that axis. Um, but the other one that I love um, is The Swimmers which is, um, I think, has his best writing about America outside of Gatsby 
uh, in it. Um, and the amazing thing about the swimmers is that he published it 10 days before the wall street crash, um, of 1929. And, and it's, and it, again, it basically kind of imagines what will happen if you lose all your money and if it all, and if it all goes to hell. Um, and he, um, and it has this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful closing passage, which I won't spoil for you. Um, but which is almost as incantatory as the ending of Gatsby about America. And it is just, and I, I, I can quote it, but I won't because I'll let you read it okay. um, for yourself. It's absolutely marvelous. And that was out of print for a long time, but now you can, you can Google it. You can get it online for free, but it's also in, um, in, in a bunch of collections now. Um, given that you like the quirky, unusual ones, I'll give yeah. you a couple of other recommendations okay. if yeah. I may. Um, one is called six of one. Um, which is a, um, it's a kind of a sort of trading places scenario. It's a bet between two rich men about whether they can take poor, it's a nature nurture bet. So can they take poor kids? Can they take six poor kids and get them? And will they be the best citizens or will six rich kids be the best citizens? And each of them has a team of their six kids. And it's like a 20 year bet to see what will happen to these kids. And again, at the end, he ties it back to America. So it's a it's a social experiment, but he makes it about the meanings of America. And the other one is called um, either more than a house or more than just a house. And it is also an um, it's a it's a kind of allegory of the depression. So that was written after the crash, um, and it's a and it's about a young man who goes through the crash and kind of and again what he sees in America in the early years of the of the depression and whether whether America will come through. I like the one about the 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 genius who falls in love with the dancer and then head and shoulders. Uh, yeah, she supports him and then she gets injured <laughs> and then he becomes the trapeze artist. I love yeah, I love that. She one becomes too. the brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Head and shoulders. Um, well, I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny story about head and shoulders, which is that there was a there was a film version of it. Really? Um called it was it was yeah, his first six stories were adapted into um silent films. Um, and they were almost all of them were lost. Although one of them, which was based on the camel's back, which is called conductor 1492 is available online and you can watch it. But most of them are lost like the 1926 Gatsby and of course, girls romance was presumed lost, but I had a PhD student working on these silent films. She actually did a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant job of reconstructing the silent films from all of the the kind of paraphernalia that survives around them, all of the journalism, but also there, there's all kinds of, it was incredibly creative. And she came to me one day in my office as she was working on her PhD. And she said, Sarah, you're not going to believe this, but I think I found something. And she was kind of shaking. And she said, I, I don't know if I've lost my mind or if I've really found this. And she took me through what she was looking at and, um, and her logic. And I started shaking and I said, yeah, you found it. And she found a chorus girls romance. Um, so there's a, we've discovered, we, wow. she discovered it. I just confirmed that she had discovered it. Um, a print of, uh, of a chorus girls wow. romance, which is the silent film version of head and shoulders. And they have it at MoMA. So wow. if you're in, if you get to New York, yes. go to MoMA and check out a film called A Chorus Girls Romance, because it's based on a short story by Fitzgerald, but the titles don't say that because the titles dropped off. And so they did, so MoMA didn't realize it. They hadn't cataloged it correctly because they didn't know it because they changed the title and they didn't know it had anything to do with Fitzgerald. Um, wow. So yeah. So if you like head and shoulders, that's, um, that's fun. 
Yeah, there's a there's a line at the beginning of that story where he says, "I was raised to be a why child." That this, anytime <laughs> I ask why, someone would answer, and I, I think about that with my kids all the time. But, okay, so so I'm, I'm sure you have to go. So I wanted to go back to the four fists really quick. What I love about mm-hmm. that story as Fitzgerald of the Moralist at the end of the story, and I'm gonna spoil it for everyone. He 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 basically realizes that uh, again, talking about capitalism, monopoly capitalism. This guy is sent west basically to steal land from a bunch of farmers. Um, uh, ranchers and and realizes that's what's happening, and he can sort of give this them the information, blow up this deal, or he can screw them over and advance his career. And he has this sort of brilliant rumination where he basically says something like, um, "You know, doing the right thing seems obvious." But it's also fundamentally selfish, right? He's like, because my family will suffer. And I've, I, I, I was just interviewing one of the Theranos whistleblowers, and I was telling him mm. about this story because, uh, you know, how how do you think about? you know, deciding to do this thing that is almost certainly not going to be rewarded, even though it's totally right. Um, even though in, in, in this kid's case, he, he didn't, uh, he wasn't married out kids, but his parents end up having to mortgage their house to pay mm. for the legal bills oh. for him to, oh, I saw to, him. yeah, to bring down yeah, he's what in the just, documentaries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, w- I was thinking of that story when I heard his story and I, I just think about that all the time. And, and to me, it sort of perfectly encapture, captures what Fitzgerald is talking about, which is, is doing the right thing is complicated. And there's, there has to be kind of a, a purity to doing it and, and almost a willful disregard of the consequences that are going to follow from this sort of pursuit of virtue, which is abstract in the real world, which is not abstract. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, we were talking about his sense of responsibility, right? And that tension between your selfish desires and your sense of responsibility to others is a fundamental theme in Fitzgerald. And that sense, but for him, that sense of responsibility to others in his fiction is often exactly goes beyond your sense of responsibility to your family, because in a sense, he, I think he would see that as fundamentally selfish too. It's me and mine. Yeah. But what is your broader responsibility? What is your social responsibility? And that's one of the reasons that I love um, the story I mentioned, More Than a House, um, which is, or More Than Just a House, um, which ends with this wonderful, wonderful line that I quote a lot, um, where he says uh, he sees the house as what he, it's a symbolic house that kind of, again, stands for, you know, kind of the, the American experience through the depression and he, or even an allegorical house. And he, and he says that, that it, it represented um, more than just a house, it was an effort towards some common wheel, an, an effort that still closely presses against us all or something like that. And and that word common wheel, right? Um, and I love that he uses the archaic version there, that, that, that sense of that we have to have some sense of a collective well-being yeah. and, what, and what is the nation's role in that and what is our individual responsibility to contribute to that common wheel. Um, and and that is to me his his moral. We keep talking about his moral sense, but his moral sense is not just an ethical sense between humans. He had this fundamental. His his moral sense was fundamentally connected to principles and values that he saw as American, um, and that's why it keeps coming back to ideas of America. I that's what the common wheel is 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 this utopian American experiment that he felt a profound conviction that you know towards supporting and 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 it comes back again and again and again in his writing and we and i think 
that's partly why I think these kind of glib cliches about the American dream do him such a disservice because he's he's got a much more complicated and active, iterative, dialogic relationship with ideas of America in his fiction if you read him more closely. And, and I think he is one of our great, great writers about America in a way that has been totally underappreciated. Yeah, it's like Great Gatsby is to the American dream what Born in the USA is to the American dream. It is what it's yeah. about, but you're totally missing the point. And uh, it's it's exactly. it should not it, it's not for you, Ronald Reagan. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I love that. I'm going to make that a bumper sticker. This is not for you, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, look, I, I I loved your book so much, and uh, I am endlessly fascinated with Fitzgerald. I want to read your um. Your book on uh, Gone with the Wind next, and I, I would love to have you back on because I want to talk about uh, that and uh, bestsellers, which I'm obviously fascinated with. I, I wrote a piece. I'm going to send it to you. I wrote this piece about um, Ask the Dust, which is like one of my favorite novels, and uh, its path to publication and rediscovery, um, which I which I think you might like. Wonderful. I'd love to read it. Thank you Amazing. so much. Um, all right. Yeah, well, this was great. awesome. Oh, I appreciate you really staying up late for it. me. Oh, no, no. It's not late at all. And uh, and appreciate making the time. And, and for, wonder, as I said, wonderful conversation about my absolute favorite thing in the world. The Gone with the Wind book is darker. I'll warn you right now. But um, but hopefully you'll you'll enjoy it too. There's certainly a lot to talk about, I think. Well, I, I, I live in the American South and I'm obsessed with the Civil War. So I, 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 know, the, I know the darkness. Yeah. You're doing right. it. <laughs> Amazing. All right. All right. Talk really soon. nice to meet you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. If you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black